0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put all the things we've been talking about on the Art of Manliness website for the past 10 years in the podcast into action. We've done this by creating 50 badges based around 50 different skills, both hard and soft skills. So there's things on wilderness survival, We've got a fighter badge. We have handyman stuff and we have like things like personal finance, music, how to be a better family man, etc. We also have weekly challenges that you'll get once a week for a year. We also have these physical fitness requirements, good D requirements. It's a whole platform to help you put your intentions into actions. And we have an enrollment going on right now, but it ends January 3rd, or until we fill up all three of our classes of 150. So if you want to get in on this for this enrollment, go to strenuouslife.co, sign up. Again, enrollment ends tomorrow, January 3rd. And if you are late or you just don't want to sign up for this enrollment, make sure you at least get your name on our waiting list so you get email when our next enrollment opens up in March. Again, strenuouslife.co. One more time, strenuouslife.co. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's a new year, and if you're like millions of people around the world, you're likely making goals to create some new habits or break some bad ones. But if you're also like millions of people around the world, your attempts at making and breaking habits will usually fail after just a few weeks of flailing effort, you'll probably think your lack of willpower is to blame. My guest today argues that it isn't truly a lack of willpower that's holding you back from your habit goals, it's the tactics you use for reaching them. His name is James Clear, he's the author of the book Atomic Habits, and today on the show, he walks us through how to make habit formation habit-breaking much easier by crafting optimal systems for behavior change. We begin our show discussing the misconceptions people have about habits and the four-step process of habit formation that tracks the four laws of behavior change. James then suggests specific ways to make good habits more attractive and easier to obtain, while making bad habits less attractive and easier to shake. We end our conversation discussing why you should take into account your unique personality when you craft your habits. Lots of useful, actual advice in the show. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is atomichabits atomic habits. All right, James Clear, welcome to the show. Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. So you've made a name for yourself as an expert on habit formation. You've been writing some great stuff on your own website, jamesclear.com, Medium. I've seen them there. So let's start the backstory. How did you get started with researching and writing about habits?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we all build habits all the time, right? Like we all have them, whether we're thinking about them or not. And so I went through that period as as well, you know, you're building habits your whole life and then particularly for me as an athlete. So I played baseball all the way through college and a bunch of other sports when I was younger as well. And you know, as any athlete can tell you, there are all kinds of habits you're building at practice or in the gym and so on. And so I didn't have a language for it at the time, but that was kind of the place where I like cut my teeth and learned like how to get 1% better each day or how to, you know, build habits and stick to routines and things like that, even though I wouldn't have said that at the time. And then I went to graduate school and I was in the Center for Entrepreneurship. That's where my graduate assistantship was. And I saw these companies getting started. Like My job was to analyze venture capital investment in the region. And so I saw all these other people starting businesses, and I kind of got the itch to like start my own thing as well. And so I graduated, and I did that, and uh, all the business ideas I had just totally flopped. I mean, nothing really went anywhere. And I realized eventually, after floundering around for a few months, that the main reason is because I didn't know how to market things. And so I started studying consumer psychology to figure out like some of those business problems, you know, like why would someone sign up to an email list or buy a product or whatever. And as I read more about consumer psychology, I started to like bleed into behavioral psychology and some of these real areas related to habit formation. And as I read more about that, I, I have a fairly scientific background. So I was mostly hard sciences and undergrad, like chemistry and physics. And it just started to catch my attention. And as I read more about habit formation, I was like, Oh, I could use this stuff with my nutrition habits or in the gym, or this is the kind of thing that we did, you know, at baseball practice or whatever. And I started to like unlock a little bit of why those previous habits worked well for me. And as I did, I kept some notes on my own about, it was just kind of like James's thoughts on habits. And it was maybe, I don't know, 60 pages long. It was like a word doc. And so this was in 2012. And I eventually was like, all right, I have all this stuff here. I should just publish something. And so I started writing November 12th, 2012 was the first article I put on jamesclare.com. And then I wrote a new article, you often about habits, uh, but also sometimes about decision-making or productivity or strength training. And I put those up every Monday and Thursday for the next three years. And it was really that writing habit that led to the growth of the site and the book deal that eventually became Atomic Habits and uh, all the other things that I now do
0: with my business and work. So you mentioned you're an athlete and you you start off the book telling the story about an experience as a young baseball player where you viscerally saw the power of habits. I mean, you almost, you had a brush with death, basically. Can you talk about that story and what you learned from like that on how habits can, just like little small changes can help improve your life?
1: So... My sophomore year of high school I was hit in the face with a baseball bat and I didn't see it coming, it was an accident, but it struck me right between the eyes and shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is uh, fairly deep inside your skull. I had a long fallout from it like I, you know, I was answering questions for about 15 minutes but after it happened but I I wasn't answering them well and uh, pretty quickly the swelling in my brain became so bad that I lost consciousness. I started to struggle with basic functions like swallowing and breathing. I had my first seizure of the day. I'd end up having three more in the next 24 hours and had to be taken to the hospital. Then pretty soon it became apparent that the local hospital did not have the resources needed to handle the situation. So I was air cared in a helicopter to a larger facility, went into surgery, was placed into a medically induced coma overnight, and then the next morning I was stable enough where The doctors realized that they could release me from the coma, and the process of healing began, but it was a very long and arduous road. So for the next eight or nine months, I couldn't drive a car because of the seizures, and I had these double vision problems because of some eye-related issues with the injury. I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line at the first physical therapy session, and of course... You know, once I started to heal and become more conscious of what the situation was, I wanted to get back on the baseball field as well. But my return to baseball wasn't smooth either. Like, I, um, you know, it took quite a few months for me to even pick up a ball again. And then when I did, I was cut from the team. I was the only junior cut from the varsity baseball team the next year, which was very hard for me, given that I had played the sport since I was like four or five years old. And, I grew up in a household where baseball was a really important thing. My dad had played professionally for the St. Louis Cardinals in the minor leagues for a little while. And I always had this dream of playing professionally as well. And for whatever reason, despite my high school career, not going to plan, I still thought I could be a good player. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I needed to take responsibility for it and make it happen. And so I started with, and this is where we come kind of full circle back to small habits. I started with the only thing that I could do. Like, I wasn't really in a situation where I could flip a switch and just like transform overnight or where I could, you know, try to make some big change. Like, all I could manage at that time was to do small habits. And so I did little things like making my bed every morning or started working out consistently. I would study and prep for class each day. And like, none of those things by themselves were earth shattering or radical, you know, were radical changes or anything. But they gave me a sense of control over my life. I felt like I, you know, a lot of it felt like things had been taken from me or like I had never asked for this. So instead, I just focused on, and rather than focusing on what was taken from me, I focused on what I could improve each day. And that little shift of focusing on those small habits led to a lot of growth. So, you know, I ended up making a college baseball team. I didn't start my first year, my sophomore year I started, my junior season I was captain, my senior season I was an academic all-American, which is something that only about 30 players around the country are named to that team. And I I don't think that like my story is legendary or heroic or anything. Like we all have things that we go through and this was this injury was just one of mine. And I never ended up playing professionally, but I do feel like I was able to fulfill my potential. And at the end of the day, I think one of the deeper purposes of why I wrote Atomic Habits and why I believe small habits can be meaningful and are important is because, regardless of the challenges that life throws you, small habits can allow you to fulfill your potential, whatever that happens to be in a particular area. And that's all we can really ask. You know, like you don't have control over external events, you don't have control over how much talent or what genes you were born with. But you do have control over your effort and the philosophy that you use each day. And in my case, I believe it should be something like, How can I get 1% better today? And if you can adhere to that over the long run, then it can make a meaningful difference.
0: Yeah, we've had someone on the podcast talking about the Kaizen method and that whole idea of 1% better. And I think people really underestimate how much you can improve over the long run if you just get 1% better every day, Mm. every week. It works both ways. You know, like habits are. They're like easy to
1: dismiss on a daily basis because they seem kind of insignificant in the moment. It's like, what is the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? Like, on any given day, not really a whole lot. You know, your body looks basically the same in the mirror at the end of the night. Scale hasn't really changed very much. It's not. It's really only like two or five or ten years later that you turn around and you're like, oh wow, those daily choices like really do matter a lot. And I think it is a very like it's like applying kaizen to your personal life. And if you can do that, whether it's writing or health or business, then you turn around like five or 10 years later and you're in a like really strong position, even though it didn't seem like you were
0: doing that much on any given day. So the book is all about small habits, atomic habits, like little small ones. But the same thing with an atom, there's a lot of power in that, right? If you unleash it. I'm curious, based on your research and just talking to people about habit formation, reading about it, are there some big misconceptions you've seen that people have about making a habit or breaking a habit or even the power of habits?
1: Yeah, so, well, let me, I, I do have quite a few that like come up often just about habits in particular, but you just mentioned something at the end of that question about like the power of habits or perhaps where habits are useful. And so I, I should just like, I'll just lead with that. Like w- habits are not, they're incredibly important. So important that I felt like it was worth spending three years of my life to write what I hope is the definitive book on how habits work and how to build them. But they're not everything. I think they are part of two of the like the two major pillars in life. So your habits and your decisions or your choices kind of both play a a central role. And decision making is kind of like it sets the trajectory for either your results in life. Like, let's say you're going to start a business, you could choose to start like a pizza parlor, a local pizza shop. Or you could choose to start, say, a software company, like an email marketing business or something. And those two businesses, you're going to be working hard either way. right? Like you're, you're, It's going to be difficult to be an entrepreneur. You have to, to put a lot of effort in. But they have different trajectories. If you're like going to map out a dotted line in front of you like going out from the moment you start the business, then the software company might have the steeper slope. It might have like more potential or a growth curve. But... Your decisions set your trajectory, but your habits determine how far you walk along that trajectory. So, you know, you could have really killer habits and end up creating a more successful business with the local pizza parlor than someone who has an idea for a great software company, but doesn't have the execution behind it. And of course, ultimately, what we're looking for is to make great decisions and have amazing habits behind them. And anyway, so I mentioned that because I think sometimes there's this misconception that, oh, if I just, you know, like master my habits, then everything will fall into place. But the the trajectory that you put yourself on matters a lot as well. So decision making plays a central role. And then the other ideas that came to me when you mentioned the myth. So the first myth with habits is like, and this is so relevant around like New Year's and so on. People will always say things like, okay, this year it's going to be different. I have to try harder. Like, if I just had a little more willpower, or grit, then I would make it happen. You know, I wish I had as much willpower as you, that kind of thing. And I think that that looks at habits from the entirely wrong angle or lens. Your habits are, and I talk about this a lot in the book, they're often a response to the environment that you find yourself in. So, environment design, whether that's the physical environment or the social environment. Shapes your habits in a really meaningful way. And willpower is not necessarily like the best way to approach it. So that's, that's one myth. And then the uh, final one that I'll mention is about this idea of like, how long does it take to build a habit? So often people will say, oh, you know, it only takes, does it take 21 days or 30 days or 66 days is a really common one now. You, there was one study that showed that on average it took about 66 days to build a habit. And so you see that number quoted a lot now. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. And um, I think the, the honest answer to that question, how long does it take to build a habit, is forever. Because if you stop doing it, then it's no longer a habit. And I think that looking at it that way, it kind of gets... There's like this implicit assumption behind that question, which is, well, how long until it's easy? How long until I can stop working? And if you view habits as a lifestyle to live and not a finish line to cross... Then it becomes easier to focus on making these small, sustainable changes because what you're actually looking to do is create a new normal, not to just like work hard for a month and then you're done.
0: So let's segue off that idea of you know, goals can often lead us astray, or they're not sometimes they're not very, they're not as useful. I mean, they are useful, but they can lead us astray and they cannot be useful. I mean, you talk about this idea in terms of habits. There's two approaches to habits and behavior change. There's um, outcome-based habits. And then there's identity-based habits. So walk us between the difference of this two. And is there one that's better or you know, are they two tools that you use in different situations? So I think our
1: default is to build what I call outcome-based habits. You know, like it's very natural for people to be like, okay, what outcomes do I want? You know, I want to lose 40 pounds in the next six months or I want to double my income this year or something like that. And then once we have the outcome, once we've set the goal, we come up with a plan for achieving it. Like, all right, I want to lose 40 pounds, so I'm going to follow this diet plan and go to the gym four days a week. And then we kind of like, whatever person we are as a result of that, we just kind of let it flow naturally. We think like, all right, well, if I do those things and I lose weight, then I'll be the kind of person I want to be. And we don't give much more thought to it. And instead, I think it's often more useful, especially in the beginning when building a habit, to focus on what I call identity-based habits instead of outcome-based. So you basically just flip the script. Rather than starting with the outcome and letting that inform the habits and then having your identity come as a result, you start with the identity and then you build the habits and you let the outcomes come as a result. So for example, you might say, all right, uh, I want to lose 40 pounds in six months. And then the question would be, well, who is the kind of person that could lose weight? And then you realize, well, maybe it's the identity, someone who has the identity of, uh, you know, I don't miss workouts. And then you just focus on building habits that reinforce that identity. So it's like, all right, you know, I went, I had to travel and I've been on the plane for five hours and I got to the hotel and I'm exhausted and I don't have time for a full workout, but I'm going to do five push push-ups before I collapse on the bed. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was, you know, it might not help me lose 40 pounds, but at least I'm the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. And so, this is where I think small habits can be very useful because they can reinforce a different type of identity. They can, it's kind of like every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you believe that you are. And so, even those small things like writing one sentence is a vote for being a writer, or doing five push ups is a vote for being a fit person or being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And once you, you know, no single instance is going to change the way that you look at yourself, but if you can do it enough, And you start accumulating those votes, it's like you have evidence of being a new kind of person. And eventually your identity has something to like root itself in and believe in. And uh, this kind of like the scales tip and you start to see yourself in this new light. And I think that outcomes and goals can be useful. We may talk about that more in a little bit. But in the beginning and ultimately, true behavior change is really identity change. Because once you look at yourself, once you see yourself in a particular way, You're not even really trying to convince yourself to do anything new. You're not even really pursuing behavior change. You're just acting in alignment with who you already believe that you are. You know, like people say things all the time like, uh, oh, I need to motivate myself to work out or I wish I just had enough you know, willpower to, to get into the gym. But once you identify as a certain type of person, you don't have to motivate yourself at all. Because once you see yourself as that kind of person, it just is natural and effortless to do. And that's kind of what we're trying to get to with uh, using small habits to reinforce the desired identity rather than an unfavorable one.
0: Yeah, it sounds very Aristotelian, right? Like virtue ethics. Like you, know, you want to become a, mm. a virtuous person. That's the the identity you want to achieve. And Aristotle, said, well, you do that by doing little small things every day to develop that identity. Right. I, th- I think that's right. You know, it's like the the key
1: insight here, I think, is the distinction of evidence. So. A lot of the time, people will say things like, fake it till you make it. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with fake it till you make it. There's nothing wrong with thinking positive or trying to you know, be confident if you don't feel like it or whatever. But fake it till you make it is like a short-term strategy, not a long-term one, because it is asking you to believe something that you don't have evidence for. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like At some point, your brain doesn't like the mismatch between, I keep saying I'm a fit person, but I never go to the gym. And so I'm talking about let the behavior lead the way and let the beliefs follow, you know, like do something small and easy, even if it's only five pushups, and then let the belief that I'm a fit person come naturally once you've shown up and cast enough votes. And so I think in that sense, I guess to use the, the Aristotle kind of angle with it, the way to be a virtuous person is to act with virtue. And by doing that, even in small ways, you eventually come to see yourself in that light.
0: And I imagine this identity insight, right, can also go to bad habits. I mean, I think part of the process of changing your identity is it might be accepting, I'm the kind of person who who drinks a lot. Like you have to accept, like maybe I'm an alcoholic, or mm. maybe I'm a smoker. And that I think a lot of people might not want to do that because it's uncomfortable and it makes you feel bad, but. Maybe you have to do that to so you can begin that identity change to where like, I'm not going to... I want to be the person, type of person who's not a drinker or a smoker or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's... A, I mean, it's a deep point and an important one. Uh, identity... And this is true for all things related to habits. Everything that we're talking about here is a double-edged sword. It can work. Habits can work for you or against you. You can get 1% better or 1% worse. And in the sense of identity, there are all kinds of identities that people adopt that hold them back. You know, things like... I have a sweet tooth or I'm bad at math or I'm terrible at remembering directions or, you know, I never remember people's names at parties or things like that. And as soon as you start to adopt that identity, and we often do it blindly, non-consciously, we don't even realize that we're identifying in that way. Like people say, I have a sweet tooth all the time. I've heard it so much recently since I've published the book and I'm starting to notice it. And we they often just use it as like an excuse. They'll say things like, uh, Oh yeah. You know, I'm like eating all this chocolate, but I have such a sweet tooth or you're out to dinner and they're like, Oh yeah, we have to get some cake. Like, I, you know, I have the sweet tooth. I love dessert. And they don't think like I am identifying as the kind of person who, you know, like has a sweet tooth. It's not, it's not that kind of like script going on in your mind, but I think that you are correct in that once it's stated, once it become, once you become aware that you have this identity, which can be a painful process or something that we like to avoid. Then though you have the chance to change it. And I think that's the the power in realizing that you're identifying in a particular way.
0: Okay. So let's recap that. It's a lot of useful information there. So basically we want to one of the more effective ways to instill new habits in yourself is start from an identity. Think about, like I want to be a runner, the type of person who's a runner, the type of person who's a weightlifter. And then you make that decision. And then every day you do little small things to reinforce that new identity. I think that's right. Okay. Well, so let's dig in to uh, a little deeper into this. You talk about the four steps of habit building that Charles Duhigg made famous in his book, The Power of Habits. Can you summarize that? And and how did you build off of that?
1: So Duhigg's approach is a three-step model where he's got cue, routine, reward. And I could give you a very long explanation for why I changed it, but I'll keep it short, which is basically that model is backed up by a lot of behavioral psychology research, which shows that... Our behaviors are kind of dependent on the rewards that they give us. And when we get a reward for doing something, when an action makes us feel good, we start to associate the cue that came before it with the feeling that comes after. So simple example is like you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies and that's the cue. And then you eat the cookie and it tastes good. And so your brain starts to learn, hey, each time I see a cookie, I should pick one up and eat it. So that's the the behavioral psychology model. And then my model also, it takes that backbone, which is very well proven, and also integrates another major area of science that has a bunch of research studies behind it from cognitive psychology, which has realized that, hey, not only do our behaviors happen as a result of the cues and rewards that are in our environment, they're also shaped by our internal states, our thoughts and moods and emotions and feelings, and our beliefs. So... For example, you could walk into a room, let's say you have two people, and there's a pack of cigarettes on the table. And one person is a smoker, and they see that cue of the cigarettes, and they interpret it as, oh, I have this craving to smoke. I you know, I should pick up a cigarette. And the other person has never smoked a cigarette in their life, and they see it, and they just think, oh, it's just a pack of cigarettes. It doesn't mean anything. It's just like a neutral thing. They don't even really like focus on it. And so the lesson here is that the way that you interpret the cues in your life determines how you respond to them and that is contingent upon your current state your internal moods and emotions and what i call in my four stage model the craving which is basically the prediction you make about the cue and whether you should act on it or not so my hope was that this four stage model integrates both behavioral and cognitive psychology so that we can understand our behavior at a deeper level and those four stages are cue craving response and reward and the cue is usually visual, but it can be it can be any of your senses. Um, but it's something that gets your attention, like that plate of cookies on the counter. The craving is the way that you interpret that cue and what kind of action or response you think you should take because of it. So it's like the motivating force that drives you to act. The response is the action itself, and then finally, there's some kind of reward or consequence. But uh, if there's a consequence, then you tend to not do it again. And so with a habit, it tends to be rewarding, which is why you repeat the cycle over and over again.
0: Right. And also, I mean, I loved how you delved into the craving aspect because I think a lot of our habits are, yeah, that motivation drives. It's like, it's not so much that you get the thing that you want, right? Like that's not what lights up dopamine in your brain. It's like just the anticipation of you getting that thing. So it's like, you know, you smoke a cigarette because there's that anticipation that you're going to get some kind of dopamine hit or you're going to do, I don't know, play a video game because there's like there's all the variable anticipation that goes on. Like you don't know if you're going to get the thing that you want. And so you just keep doing it until you you get that thing.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. And there has, there was kind of this like really big shift in the dopamine research uh, a few years ago where they realized this, that actually it, once a habit is formed, dopamine spikes before the behavior, not after. Like if you show cocaine addicts, some powder, some cocaine, the dopamine will spike in their brain before they take it, not after they take it. Or gamblers will get a spike of dopamine when they see dice not after they throw them and so it's actually that spike of dopamine in addition to many other things but that's like one of the key players that motivates you to take action and perform the habit and so it's a it's a very key stage and i would summarize it just by saying perceived value motivates you to act actual value motivates you to repeat so when you see the plate of cookies, you perceive that there is some value there. This is going to be tasty. This will be sugary. This will be enjoyable. And what, you, what gets you to act is not the cookie itself because you haven't eaten it yet. It's the image that the cookie creates in your mind. It's your expectation. That anticipation gets you to walk over and pick it up and eat it. And then the actual value, the way that it tastes, the sugar and the sweetness and the chocolate and so on. If that is enjoyable and satisfying, if it's rewarding, then you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. So the reward is what gets you to come back again because it's like, hey, this did have a payoff, but it's the anticipation that gets you to act in the first place.
0: So uh, you, knowing this information, this, this, this basically is this, the this structure you've built up, this four steps of habit building you created or came up with these four laws of behavior change. So what are those four laws of behavior change? So basically, there's just one for each of the four steps. And for
1: the cue, the first law is to make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious and available and visible. For the craving, the second law of behavior change is to make it attractive. So the more attractive a behavior is, the more likely you are to repeat it. And we can talk about some ways to do that. For the third stage, the response, the third law of behavior change is to make it easy The more easy, frictionless, convenient your habits and behaviors are, the more likely you are to repeat them in the future. You know, like, why do we check our smartphones 100 times a day? It's because they're literally like a millimeter from your skin, right? They're in your pocket all the time. It's so easy that you do it constantly. And then the fourth law of behavior change for the reward is to make it satisfying. And the key here is really about making it immediately satisfying. Behaviors that have an immediate payoff are more likely to be repeated. And so those four laws, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying, are the four laws of behavior change that you can follow to build a good habit. It's kind of like this toolbox that you can use. And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert the four laws. So for your bad habits, rather than make it obvious, you want to make them invisible Rather than attractive, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And there are many, many ways that I cover in the book, and we'll talk about some of them now, that are strategies that you can use to do those four things.
0: Are these strategies you have to do at the same time or can you use one? Or do you have to like rejigger or mess with all of these all at once to actually have the, the payoff?
1: Yeah, good question.
0: Uh, you definitely don't have to use them all at once. And in many
1: cases, you'll only need to use one or two to kind of get over the friction and have that new habit built. So, for example, when I wanted to start flossing consistently, I realized that, you know, I always brush my teeth, but I wasn't flossing as much as I wanted to. I wasn't doing it consistently. The key issues is that the floss was in the drawer in the bathroom. I just like wouldn't see it, it was tucked out of sight. And so, first law of behavior change make it obvious. I bought a little bowl and I put the floss in the bowl and I set it right next to my toothbrush. So brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up, it's right there. And that was pretty much all I needed to do to build that habit. So that's one example of a habit that was built that I've now stuck to for years that all I had to do was just make it more obvious. So you don't have to use all four.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily create a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domain names is also sent You'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn your great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash manliness, offer code manliness for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Also by Candid. Candid makes the process of straightening your teeth convenient and easy by letting you take the process into your own hands. With Candid, you can get straighter and brighter teeth in an average of six months and at 65% less than the cost of braces. Candid's clear aligners are sent directly to your home and are customized specifically for you to straighten your teeth. It starts with their modeling kit, which is sent directly to your home so you can take the impressions of your own teeth. Then Candid's network of highly trained orthodontists reviews your specific case and provides you with a 3D preview of what your treatment will look like. Candid's support team is available over email or phone and will even set up a video call to walk you through the modeling process. You're one step away from getting straighter, wider teeth. Take advantage of Candid's risk-free modeling kit guarantee Plus, when you use my dedicated link, candidco.com slash manliness, you'll save 25% off your modeling kit. That's candidco.com manliness to get 25% off the price of your modeling kit. Again, one more time, candidco.com manliness. And now back to the show. Yeah, the flossing habit is something... Every time I go to the dentist, I'm always motivated... To start, because like you know, the hygienists, they do that thing where they poke your gums and they tell you yeah. like how deep your pocket is, and yeah. I'm always like, she's like, "Well, we got some four millimeters here." My wife, my wife and I call them the, the pockets of shame because I always feel so sure so right. ashamed sitting there laying down floss
1: and, and you're like bleeding like right, crazy. And they're like right. clearly you haven't been doing this
0: right. I, I tell them like I haven't been flossing, and then but then like <laughs> after the the visit, I'm like oh, I'm going to become a flosser, and I do all the things with little little floss sticks, and it goes for about a month, and then. It, it, then the pockets of shame develop again. Anyways, right. maybe I'm going to start using the things in your book too, to finally make this an identity for me, that I'm a philosopher. Nice. So let's dig into some of these tactics on how we can implement some of these laws of change. So let's talk about make it obvious, the cue obvious or not obvious. What are some things that you've uncovered based on your research that you can to make your, the cue more obvious or unobvious based on whether you want a good habit or a bad habit?
1: So I think, I think the first place to start is with what I call environment design. And so similar to what I just described with the floss, you basically want to restructure your environment, whether that's the office that you work in or your kitchen counter at home or your living room to make the cues of your good habits obvious and the cues of your bad habits invisible or hidden. And so putting the floss on the counter in the the bathroom is one example. Another one is for a long time, I realized (laughs) we would go to the my wife and I would go to the store and buy like apples. And then we would put them in the crisper in the bottom of the fridge. And I would always forget they were there. And so then, you know, I turn around like two weeks later and they would have gone bad. And then I'd be annoyed. You're like throwing money away and wasting food and whatever. And so instead I bought a big display bowl and we put it right in the middle of the counter and put the apples there. And so now I eat them. They're gone in like three days, right? Just, just because I see them and they're right there. Like I'll just snack on whatever is out. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Like, if I walk into the kitchen and there's a plate of 10 cookies, I'm going to eat them. I'll probably eat them all that day. Like I'll just, you know, keep coming back again and again. And so you can do that just by improving your nutrition habits. Just keep, you know, keep some fruit in a bowl or keep a like a clear jar of nuts on the counter so that it's obvious and easy for you to get the stuff that you should be eating rather than the bad stuff. And then on the flip side, of course, you could take the unhealthy food and, you know, you can put it on the highest shelf in the pantry or tuck it down low in the fridge. I don't think this would actually work for like if you were dealing with alcoholism or something like that. But I've noticed that if I buy a six pack of beer and I put it at the front of the fridge or in the door where I can see it as soon as I open it up, I'll pull one out and drink it each night just because it's there. But if I take that same six pack and I put it on the bottom shelf all the way in the back where I can't see it when I open the door up, uh, sometimes it'll sit there for like a month. And that's always, examples like that are always interesting to me because you would think like, if you're drinking each night, oh, I must have wanted a beer, but actually you were just responding to the way that the environment was designed. So those are a few examples with relation to food. And then another example, and this one's kind of more for breaking a bad habit, a lot of people feel like they watch too much television or they spend too much time, you know, browsing Netflix or whatever, but... If you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Like they all look at the TV. So, what is that room designed? What is that room designed to get you to do? Right. And so, there are a variety of things you could do. Like you could take a chair and turn it away from the TV and maybe like have a book on the shelf next to it. Or you could take the remote control and put it inside a drawer in the coffee table and put a book in its place or you could unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in. If you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So like, you're not allowed to just like f- turn Netflix on and find something, or you could put the TV inside a wall unit or a cabinet, or even, you know, if you really want to be extreme t- take it off the wall and put it in a closet and only set it back up when you wanted to watch it bad enough. But anyway, my point there is just that there are varying levels of extremity and a lot of people find themselves watching TV because All the chairs face it. It, There's a television in the bedroom right in front of their uh, bed. Like it's just, you know, it's obvious. And so by removing that from the environment, you make it easier to stick with some of those new habits.
0: Right, and that's counter to what a lot of people want to do when they try to form a habit because they just want to use pure willpower. Like they'll keep their environment exactly the same and they'll just say, well, I'll just, if I see the cookies, I'll just force myself not to eat the cookies. But like the easier thing to do is like exercise some willpower at the beginning. Don't buy any cookies. Don't bring them to your house. And then you don't think about it after that.
1: Right. It's so strange that we do that, but that that's like the standard narrative, you know, it's like, Oh, I just need to, what we think is I need to try harder, but something that's important to realize about habits is that habits are tied to a particular context. So like early on when a habit's first being built and in some cases in the long run, maybe your habit is tied to a very specific cue, like seeing the cookies on the counter. But over time, your habits kind of become tied to the general context that they happen in. Like, you know, if you make a cup of coffee every morning, you could say that the cue is like the coffee machine on the counter, but really it's probably even broader than that. It's like the context of being in your kitchen at 7:30 in the morning, that all of that that's wrapped into that is kind of like what gets you to remind you to make that coffee. And this is true for all kinds of habits. So like the key insight here is that changing your environment not only makes it easier for some behaviors to occur and harder for others, and so structuring it in that way can make it easier for you to stick to a new habit, but also changing it uh, your environment makes it easier for you to build a new habit because it changes the context that all your previous ones were tied to. Like, let's say that um, let's say that you want to build the habit of reading, and so you go to work and you come home and you sit down on the couch after dinner. And you're like, all right, I want to read 20 pages tonight. And you sit down, but that that same couch that you're sitting on to read, maybe previously it's been the couch where you, you know, watch television for an hour. And so you don't think about it, but subconsciously, your mind is kind of nudging you towards like you have this behavioral bias in that environment where it's like, this is the couch where I watch television. And so oftentimes it can be easier to build a new habit. If you have a change in your environment or an entirely new one, like you could have, um, you could buy like a new chair and put it in the corner, and that becomes the reading chair. And the only thing you do in that chair is you read 20 pages. And if you can do that, especially in the beginning, then you can start to tie that habit to that new context. Or, you know, like say you want to start journaling. And so you come home from work and you try to journal on the couch, but you again find yourself being pulled to television. Instead, you could say, after I leave work, I'm going to go to a coffee shop I don't usually go to, and this is going to become the journaling coffee shop. And when I walk in, I turn off my phone and I sit down at the same table and I journal for 10 minutes and then I get back in my car and I drive home. And you know, it depends on the habit you're trying to build. But my point is just that a new context does not ask you to overcome your previous behavioral biases. And so it's not just environment design, but also selecting the right environment that makes new habits easier to form.
0: Okay, so we talked about making the cue more obvious or invisible based on whether we're trying to get a good habit or a bad habit. Let's talk about the craving. So we can make that craving more attractive or unattractive. But this is tricky because oftentimes the good habits we want to develop, like they're not very attractive. Like (laughs) flossing isn't a lot of fun, like paying your bills regularly, journal. I mean, they're not very attractive, but then like the bad habits they're really attractive, Mm. right? Like surfing the internet, uh, smoking, alcohol, porn, whatever. They're super attractive. So how do you make things that are good for you but aren't attractive in the short term more attractive? And then we can talk about how do you make things that are attractive in the short term seem less attractive?
1: So making the things that you want to do more attractive, you can use a strategy called temptation bundling. And the basic idea is you pair something you you do want to do, you actually want to do, with the thing that you need to do. So for example, I came across this woman in my research who, she always had these overdue work emails and she was like, oh, you know, I never want to process these. And so she created a rule for herself because she loved getting pedicures where she said, okay, I will only get a pedicure if I'm processing overdue work emails while I'm doing it. And I came across another guy, this engineering student, who he knew that he needed to be exercising more, but he would always just go home and binge watch Netflix. And so he put his engineering degree to use and linked his stationary bike to his computer such that Netflix would pause unless he was pedaling. And so he basically forced himself to, yeah, I can binge watch Netflix, but I have to be riding the bike. And little strategies like that are ways to layer the thing that you want to do with something you need to do. And it makes it inherently more attractive. It is now more attractive to cycle because it means I get to watch Netflix. And so little rules like that, like, I want to read the next Game of Thrones novel, but I'm only allowed to do that if I'm walking on the treadmill or something like that allows you to, to kind of make that good habit more attractive. And then your second question, which is, okay, a lot of these bad habits are very attractive. We seem to fall into them without much effort. So what can we do about that? And basically, you can use what psychologists call a commitment device. So one of my favorite examples of this is Victor Hugo, who was the famous author, wrote Les Mis and Hunchback of Notre Dame. And while he was writing Hunchback of Notre Dame, he he signed the book deal and he just procrastinated for like a year. He had a bunch of friends over. They partied. He hosted dinners. He went out to eat. He traveled. He basically did everything except work on the book. And so his publisher got upset with him and they said, listen, you know, we, we need this book to get done. Like either you have to finish this in six months or we're going to cancel the deal. And so Hugo had his assistant come into his uh, chambers and they gathered up all of his clothes and put them in a big chest and locked them up. And then they took the clothes out of the chamber. And the only thing that was left in the house was this big, like shawl, this like robe And so suddenly, he didn't have any clothes that were suitable for entertaining guests or hosting dinner parties or traveling. And he basically put himself on house arrest. And it worked. He he got the book done two weeks early. And that is an example of a commitment device, a choice that you make up front that locks in the better behavior rather than the bad habit that's like easy for you to do. So like... Let's say you want to start running in the morning, you know, and you're like, you go to bed at night and you're like, all right, tomorrow's the day. I'm going to stick to the habit of running and I'm going to wake up at 6am and go to the park. But then 6am rolls around and your bed is warm and it's cold outside. And you're like, uh, you know, like I'll just snooze for a little bit and you end up not going. Well, you could use a commitment device, like texting your friend earlier in the week and saying, Hey, you know, can we meet at the park 6am on Thursday and go for a run? And now it gets to the morning and it's still cold outside and your bed is warm and you want to stay in there. But if you do, you're going to be a jerk because you're going to leave your friend stranded at the park. And so you've effectively committed or locked in your future behavior and made it more attractive now to get out of bed because not getting out of bed means you're a bad friend. And so those are two examples of ways to Utilize temptation bundling to make good habits more attractive, or commitment devices to kind of get over the hump of the
0: bad behavior. So let's talk about response now. Uh, the The laws there are: make it easy uh, to form a good habit, make it difficult to get rid of a bad habit. So, what are some tactics you can do with that?
1: So, the simplest way to do this one is what I call the two minute rule, and you basically take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to just two minutes or less. So. Let's say you want to read a book every month for the next year. Well, read 12 books becomes read one page. Or you want to do uh, weightlifting four days a week, and that becomes you know like put on my weightlifting shoes and get out the door or something like that. And people sometimes people resist this because it sounds like oh, a little too simple, a little too easy. You know, like I know the real goal is to actually work out for 45 minutes. It's not to put on my lifting shoes, but. This is a key insight about building, building better habits, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. Like you need to make it the new normal in your life, make it the standard before you worry about optimizing it. And so the two minute rule basically gives you a way to make good habits easy and master the art of showing up.
0: Gotcha. And what about making things harder? How can you make things harder for yourself? So this is a lot about friction And basically,
1: the core idea is to increase the number of steps between you and the bad behavior. So, BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford, writes a lot about habits as well. And I thought he had a good example where he liked, he enjoys popcorn, but he didn't want to eat as much of it, but he didn't want to like eliminate it entirely. And so, he took the popcorn out of his pantry, walked down the hall, went into the garage and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. And so, if he really wants it, he can just go out and get it. But if he's designing for like his default decision, for his lazy action, he's not going to go get it. And so now there are more steps between him and the bad choice. And this is kind of like another version of environment design, but rather than like making the cues invisible or making the um, the cues of your good habits obvious, you're trying to increase the amount of friction between you and the task. And some of the things that you mentioned earlier um, about like social media or you know reading ESPN too much or checking porn or all that kind of stuff. You can do this in the digital environment as well. So, you know, there are tools like freedom or self control. Those are two of the names of these applications you can use to block websites and effectively like increase the friction of doing the bad habit. Or on my phone, you can't see it right now, of course, but on my home screen, I have no applications. And if I want to get to social media sites, I have to be able to swipe over twice and then click inside a nested folder. And it's not like, you know, some bulletproof strategy, but it just increases the friction a little bit enough for me to be like, do I really want to check Instagram or am I just like going to this mindlessly because it's the first thing I see when I open my phone? And uh, so little strategies like that to increase the friction of bad habits can make it more difficult to do the thing you don't want to do.
0: So this is just accepting the fact that human beings are really lazy and we're going to do the thing that, you know, the path of least resistance. So just add some friction to that.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and that's not, you know, like I, I do say something similar to that in the book that like our real motivation is to be lazy, but that's not a bad strategy. Like ultimately what your brain and body are trying to do is conserve energy because energy is precious and you want to make sure that you don't waste it on anything. And so when we were living in tribes on the savannah that was a great strategy because it meant that you know we didn't waste effort walking to a berry patch two miles away if there was one you know 50 feet to the left but in modern society we have like all these weird setups because now we can get things just by tapping a button on a screen and so the path of least
0: resistance is not necessarily the one that serves us so let's talk about the reward step in habit formation so the law there is, to form a good habit, make it satisfying. And then to break a bad habit, make it unsatisfying. So what are some tactics that you found to do that?
1: So the core idea here is that if a behavior is followed by a feeling of pleasure, by a feeling of satisfaction, then you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. It's kind of like this positive emotional signal to your brain where it was like, hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. And the key insight, which I hinted at earlier, is that it's really about what makes you feel good in the moment that gets habits to stick. And you can, this makes sense because if you ask yourself like, well, how come bad habits form so readily? You know, like we, we don't really try to form bad habits. We just seem to do that do it automatically, even though we know it's a bad habit, right? Like, well, why would I do that if I know that it's not good for me? And the answer is that habits and most behaviors produce multiple outcomes across time. So in any given moment, the immediate outcome often of bad habits is favorable. You know, like if you eat a donut right now, it's great, it tastes sugary, feels good, it's sweet. But the ultimate outcome in six months or a year, if you repeat that habit, is unfavorable. Meanwhile, good habits are kind of the reverse. You know, like the immediate outcome of going to the gym is, well, it takes effort and you sweat and it's hard work. And the ultimate outcome of, you know, I'm ripped and I can bench press 300 pounds, that's not happened until six months or a year or five years later. And so a lot of the challenge of building good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out how to take that long-term reward, that satisfaction that eventually you'll get if you stick with it for your good habits and pull that into the present moment so you can feel it right now. And products are great examples of this. So like one of my favorite examples, um, well, a very common one is toothpaste. So you know, there's no reason that toothpaste has to taste minty. It could just be like a bland paste and still clean your teeth just fine. But it has this fresh flavor, this mint flavor, because it's more satisfying to get this clean mouth feel at the end of brushing your teeth. It feels more satisfying and thus you want to do it again. But one of my favorite examples is from car manufacturers. So a few years ago, BMW added this feature to some of their cars where... If you stepped on the accelerator and really pressed on the gas, it would pump additional engine growl through the speakers. The the engine wasn't actually faster. It wasn't actually a better car or like had more roar, but it felt like that because they played the music with it. And Ford has kind of a similar setup where on a couple of their cars, there's like this valve. And if you drive normally, the valve stays shut and the interior is relatively soundproofed. And if you really slam on the gas, the valve opens and lets the engine noise in. But that's really about making the experience of driving the car more satisfying in the moment. And so ultimately, what you're looking for are ways to experience that with your good habits. So how can you feel satisfied right away? And one way to do that, I think that you can apply to almost any habit is with habit tracking. So tracking is basically you write down, you know, you put like an X on the calendar for each day that you do a habit or something like that and it's a small thing but it feels good to cross off another workout or another day of writing and uh, that can give you some small sense of satisfaction in the moment
0: so we've talked about these different laws that you can use to change behavior for the good or the bad but my, one of my favorite chapters at the end you talk about you know okay we, and this kind of seg- this kind of goes back to that earlier discussion we had at the beginning that about decision making and habits oftentimes i feel like when people make habits they're like i got to wake up at 4:30 in the morning but that might not be what you need to do. Like it's not like your personality isn't suited for waking up at 4.30 in the morning. So you try to do that and you're just kicking against the pricks and it's not making your habits work for you. So what can people do to take into account their personality or their own personal situation so their habits actually work for them instead of against them?
1: Yeah. I'm glad you liked that chapter. That was one of my favorites as well. So Basically there first of all just there are a lot of different ways to build similar habits you know like let's say you want to get in the habit of exercise well there are a bunch of ways to do that right like you don't not everybody has to train like a bodybuilder i love lifting weights but you could go hiking or rowing or rock climbing or do yoga or pilates like there i mean there's like an infinite range of things and similarly like if you're looking to build a reading habit well, yeah, I think that reading nonfiction books and business kind of books, the type of thing that I wrote with atomic habits, I think that's really useful and solves a lot of problems. But if you're not into that and you want to read Harry Potter or science fiction or romance novels or whatever, like that's fine. Just build the form of a habit that is most satisfying to you. And you don't have to do the habit that like society says you should do. So that's that's kind of the first lesson. But the second thing with regards to personality is that Success, whether we're talking about building habits or just more generally in life, is often a matching problem. It's often about figuring out how to match your particular makeup, whether that's your physical genes or your psychological characteristics, with the right environment. You know, like if you have genes that make you seven feet tall, well, that's a really useful thing on a basketball court, but it's a great hindrance if you're on a balance beam and trying to do a gymnastics routine. And so, this is something that I think is often overlooked when we talk about genes and personality, because people bring those topics up and they kind of want to avoid them a lot of the time because it's like, oh, it feels fixed and deterministic, or like, why bother if it's all just my genes? Like, isn't it all predetermined? But the lesson is that the usefulness of your genes, the usefulness of your personality is dependent on the context that you find yourself in. And so, if you can put yourself in Basically, genes do not like change the need to work hard. They just show you like where to work hard. They inform your strategy. So, for example, one way to measure personality is with a test called the Big Five. And one of the, it kind of maps personality on five spectrums. And so, like the one most people are familiar with is introversion on one side and extroversion on the other. But there's another spectrum there, which is called agreeableness. And it's basically like how warm and kind and considerate your personality is. And you can imagine people who are high in agreeableness, like it might be easy for them to get in the habit of writing thank you notes or get in the habit of like organizing social events and getting friends together. Whereas someone who's low in that, they may struggle more with that. And so essentially what that tells you is if you understand your your personality a little bit better it can show you like where to focus. Like Maybe the person who's low in agreeableness, who's going to have a harder time like naturally feeling like writing thank you notes, maybe it's really helpful for them to use environment design and to have thank you notes pre-selected and in a little box, like right in a very visible place on their desk so that it's there reminding them since they aren't naturally going to feel that themselves. And uh, so little things like that can help tweak or improve your strategy for building new habits.
0: No, I love that because I think, especially with social media, there's a tendency, because you see people who are successful and they're typically extroverted and, you know, on that. And that's great. But then you see, there's people who see that who might be an introvert and like, well, I want that. It seems like society values that. And so they try to do it and they're just miserable in the process because it doesn't suit them. And they probably might've been happier doing something else and just as flourishing and successful.
1: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. You know, like the... There's no reason to, there's no one way to be successful. There's no one way to make it work. And there's also no one right way to build a habit. And so that's why I wanted to kind of give people a tool set that they could use. And I think ultimately, you know, you can have the best advice in the world, but you need to be willing to experiment. And part of that philosophy of experimentation is self-discovery and figuring out what works for you and like, what kind of person am I and what resonates with me? And so thinking through some of those questions, I think um, it doesn't, disregard or ignore the fact that like there are some fundamentals that work for everyone, but it shows you how to apply the fundamentals for your particular
0: use. So we've talked about a few of the tactics. There's a lot more that we can go into and people can get that in the book. What do you think there's something like the one thing that someone can do today that will provide a lot of ROI in starting a good habit or breaking a bad one?
1: Well, the single biggest choice is what kind of habit you are trying to build. And so... The first thing that I would suggest is scaling it down. We talked about the two minute rule as one possible way to do that. But, you know, like if you want to get in the habit of reading, man, there are a bunch of ways to set that out for yourself. You know, you could say, I want to read a new book every week. I want to read a new book every month. I want to read 20 pages a day. I want to read one page a day. And just those four that I've brainstormed right now are very different. They land in your brain in a different way. And so I think the most useful thing you can do is choose the simplest version of the habit you're trying to build so that you can feel successful again and again and build up some of that momentum. I mean, this, you know, you mentioned um, a few moments ago, video games. One of the reasons that video games stick so well is because they give continual signals of progress. You know, you have the score, the little counter up in the top right corner that's showing you your score is going up. Whenever you come across like rubies or coins or um, you know resources or guns or little power-ups, there's like a jingle or a chime. Even the the pitter patter of footsteps as you run through the different levels is giving you a signal of hey, you're making progress, you're moving forward. And real life, it's hard to have that. It's hard to to feel like you're always making progress every moment of every day. And video games are so addictive. So they're so sticky because it feels good to make progress. And so by choosing a habit that's small, something you can do in two minutes or less, you can feel satisfied in the moment. You can feel like you're making progress. I did my pushups today. I wrote my one sentence today. I stretched for a minute today. I read one page, whatever it is. And I think that's a great way to build up some momentum and get started and start to feel confident about your ability to change.
0: Well, James, there's someplace, someplace people can go to learn more about your work. Yeah, so you know, if
1: you just want to check out some of the articles I've written, things like that, you can go to jamesclear.com. If you click on articles, I have them organized by topics. You can feel free to poke around and see what interests you. And then if you'd like to check out the book, it's called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. And uh, you can find that at atomichabits.com.
0: Well, fantastic. James, it's been a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you find over 3,000 articles on personal development, personal finance, social skills, health and fitness. You name it, we've got it. Now, if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. I encourage you not only to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've learned into action.